It's time for Plan B with with Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, John. I, I you know, I, I hear what you're saying about uh, Jackson and Tembu and that every COVID death is meaningful, and I completely agree. But I just, I wanted to say actually that, you know, as journalists, we spend a lot of time with politicians and you quickly get to know who are the nice ones and who are the not so nice ones. And Jackson Tembu really was and just an absolute gentleman. I think possibly the nicest cabinet minister. And I doubt you'll find a journalist or a political colleague with a bad word to say about him. He was always so warm, so friendly, so eager to help. And I think he will be really greatly missed from the political establishment in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, I shared a reminiscence after three o'clock of having a very long conversation with him on the radio after he had pleaded guilty to and then been convicted of drunken driving in 2010. Mm. And it was one of the most genuinely contrite conversations I've had with somebody who had done wrong, recognized that wrong and owned up to it completely. And he had not, to the best of our knowledge, done wrong yeah, for many, many then. years. I think yeah. he was really one of the good guys, and um, I'll miss him. And then, to talking about doing wrong, um, wrong in the in the line of vaccine procurement, which is a story that you have been following closely. I mean, Peter Bruce's column today that the phone call that he made to Moderna, if he'd had the money, he would have been able to get dozens of millions of vaccine doses to South Africa by mid-2021. I mean, it... Yeah, blame game. How, how do we how do we address the fact that it is clear that between the various excuse the word stakeholders, things have gone wrong with this? Things have gone wrong, and it's very very clear. I'm the first to say this. I've reported on this. That government has not done enough. That government has effectively messed up South Africa's chances of any kind of timeliest procurement. And I just wanted to make that clear. But you know, John, I keep having conversations with health activist friends. You say, you guys in the media are doing a disservice to the story by not also making it clear at this point that we should be holding the feet of pharmaceutical companies to the fire more. And I do think this is true, John, that we're kind of obsessed now with tracking down exactly how badly government messed up. Why didn't government start talking about vaccines, you know, the day the Wuhan virus was reported on, etc. But here's what government did do, the South African government, very early. The government lodged a request for an IP waiver and the international prop- the intellectual property rights early in July last year, which is very rarely mentioned. What that means is South African India went to the World Trade Organization and asked for a patent waiver, asked that please those patents be eased temporarily so that low-income countries like South Africa and India could produce the vaccine themselves. And that proposal was supported by 99 low and middle income countries. In fact, my sources tell me that South Africa is kind of seen as something of a hero in Geneva for pushing this battle, which is so underreported, actually. High income countries rejected it outright. And of course, it's been rejected by countries with strong pharmaceutical lobbies. And the argument has been, you know, if patent law didn't exist, these pharmaceutical companies would have absolutely no incentive to make these drugs as they have done it so fast and that is actually a tribute to, you know, the kind of the free market, to the fact that they are able to charge for these things. And that's all well and good. But we we say, for instance, isn't it a pity that South Africa didn't get ahead of the game and order X amount of vaccines? We're not saying, Don, 
isn't it a pity that pharmaceutical companies, being aware that the whole world was going to order and pay for these drugs, didn't say to rich world countries, hold on, we're oversupplying you at the moment. How about you just take what you need so that we have enough to give to the rest of the world as well? I mean, there's a sense yeah, that the pharmaceutical that... companies are utterly free from blame. And I understand that's yeah. not how capitalism works, John, but we're not talking about making T-shirts here. We're talking about making drugs that save lives for the whole world. I mean, there comes a point where at some point we have to say, at what point does capitalism kind of just kill us all? You know, I agree, Rebecca, but there's a long-term conversation and there's a short-term conversation. In the long-term conversation, the... Uh, the reality that allows Canada to order five times the number of vaccines that it's going to need to properly inoculate its entire population, and it does so because it has the funds to approach all of the likely vaccine candidates and order from each of them enough to vaccinate the entire population. That is a long-term wrong, and things must be done about that. But there is a short-term issue. That is the reality. That reality is not going to be changed by the middle of 2021 or the end of 2021. So that means the short-term focus must, must, the short-term focus must be on government being efficient in gaming the system the best way it can while that system still exists. And that's absolutely, I absolutely agree with that now. But if back in July last year, the, w, the WTO had been more amenable to this, and they're still discussing it, John, they're discussing it this week, to say on emergency health grounds, just like during the height of the AIDS epidemic, when we granted poor countries the right to make generic drugs, if that had been granted back mid last year, I'm not saying we would have been able to produce the vaccine overnight, everyone knows we wouldn't have. But still, we could be in a different place. And as India has pointed out, it's a bit rich that the countries in the first world are both buying up as much of the limited supply of vaccines as they can and also arguing against the patent waiver. I mean, doing both those things starts to look a little, well, selfish. And yes, John, we should at this point be putting as much pressure on government as we can. But let's also ask about the wider system. Let's ask, why is it okay that drug companies are allowed to negotiate with non-disclosure agreements and we all just have to... I mean, even National Treasury today said it actually doesn't know whether it will be given the details of the the non-disclosure agreement signed with the Department of Health. How is it possible that drug companies can can act in this way simply in order to charge different companies different different amounts? We have to ask whether this system is working and if now is not the moment for that, then when will be? I guess. But we mustn't only ask that question. We must ask that question and keep on asking that question until the answers make sense, as well as asking the other set of questions, which allow us to make maximal use of the system, which for the moment exists. A lot of talk, Rebecca, about what can be done to fix social media as a site of misinformation. And now we have the answer. I mean, it turns out it was really simple. You just ban Trump. And that seems like an oversimplification. It's actually really not. The world's leading social media intelligence company, called Signal Lab, has found that in the week after Twitter and Facebook, etc., banned Donald Trump, online misinformation about the U.S. election alleged fraud dropped 74%. Hashtags and slogans related to those people storming the Capitol with their false impressions 
dropped by 95%. That is how easy it was. But if you take out the big mouth at the center of this, who is spewing all this rubbish, turns out there just isn't that much momentum for the lies to keep going. And it's interesting to think about how that might apply in a country like South Africa. And also interesting to think about how we balance that against, you know, everyone's acceptance of the need for free speech. Perhaps some people's speech needs to be more curtailed than others. Yeah, Jack Dorsey's, um, it was kind of mea culpa, apologia. It was, uh, we did it, but I'm not sure that we did the right thing. Uh, Yeah, he, he, for me, was the only one in the field who has approached this with the right sense of, the complexity and, and nuance of the debate. Um, you know, why is the Supreme Ayatollah of Iran's Twitter account not suspended, for example? Sure. Yeah. And now we see that Donald Trump's son, Eric, has appealed to Elon Musk, of all people, to build Donald Trump, a new platform on which he can freely spew. If Elon Musk does that, I think we must consider blocking him from South Africa or, or, or renouncing his citizenship, assuming he still has it. And then let's talk about what is surely, and this is not to to gainsay the importance of the two very important things that we've been importantly talking about, the important you and the less important me, but surely the news of greatest global significance this week is, drumroll, Rebecca. They have discovered a perfectly preserved, the world's first ever dinosaur butthole. Surely there's a, a, there's a more scientific phrase than butthole, Rebecca. I suspect it is anus, which is not a particularly <laughs> delightful word, but the article I'm referring to uses the term butthole throughout, I think because anus is, is quite an unpleasant word. It comes from the dinosaur Sitacosaurus, which is a bristly-tailed, Labrador-sized, horn-faced dinosaur. Now, they really had not ever found the dinosaur's, I don't know what you would call it, um, aperture, um, an excretory opening. They didn't. They had not previously found any evidence of this in dinosaur remains, which is why this is such a big deal. There's so many things about the story I like, John. One is that one of the researchers, Diane Kelly, is described as an expert on vertebrate penises and copulatory systems. What an amazing thing to put on your business cards or indeed what, your what, What's she doing over. studying the other side of the body then, if that's her expertise? Well, I suppose one can't just be an expert on the other side of the body, John. I mean, I know job descriptions are getting ridiculous. Anyway, this dinosaur, Sitacosaurus, had a butthole, it has been discovered, which is used for everything, uh, which is why the researchers also find a fossilized piece of feces in its bum, preserved as well. And this is an actual quote from one of the researchers it's like a Swiss army knife of excretory openings. It does everything. So in other words, this was used for defecating, urinating, and reproducing, John. It's an all-purpose hole. It's the dinosaurs. And that's big news. <laughs> I, I feel a bit like I'm 11 years old <laughs> And sharing potty jokes on the school playground, it must be said. But it's a welcome relief from all of the other stuff. Rebecca Davis, thank you very much.